Good evening and welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. We're tuned in. Uh, Barry's on the other side and he's got some terrible news. Yeah, I'm slightly wounded from one of my <laughs> cricket matches, but otherwise we're all good and ready to get stuck in. Well, let's do that. So welcome again. If you're new here, because uh, we do have a couple of new subscribers, um, Barry is tuned in via Skype in Johannesburg. I'm here in London. Barry, how's it going today? How was your week? Um, sort of bruises aside. <laughs> yeah, things are good. Things are very good. Uh, the year is starting to kick into gear, which is really good. And even though Joburg's had some rain over the last couple of days, my spirits are high and I'm, I'm excited about the rest of the year. How are you doing, Chad? Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely freezing the side, to be honest. Today was two degrees. <laughs> um, we're starting wow. to... You know, it's, it's definitely starting to, to get on the cold side of life, um, but the sun is shining today, so uh, no complaints there. Shall we get into the week that was? Let's do it. We've got a lot of stuff today. <laughs> the week that was. Alrighty, and the first thing that's on the week that was for this week is a big acquisition that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and that's the company Visa has bought a startup called Plaid for 5.3 billion US dollars. So really, really big acquisition. And of course, Visa we know as the the global giant across the world, they handle a lot of merchant transactions, a lot of credit card transactions, and they basically are the pipes of the global financial system, if we think about it like that. They compete with MasterCard and with a few much smaller players, but Visa is one of the huge global giants. And for them to make this kind of acquisition really signals for me a change in the in the ecosystem and a change in the way they think about their business. Uh, because Visa in the past have made some smaller acquisitions, but more so in the technical side and looking to acquire and less so buying a company like this which is so fundamentally different to what they do. So let's go through a little bit of what Plaid does. Plaid, what they do is they provide software that handles the back end of non-card payments, so outside of Visa's gambit completely. Things like mobile money, Venmo, et cetera, of companies who, where you send, your, you send money to someone else via a email address or via a telephone number, et cetera, and it escapes the normal financial system. And so Plaid have been acting as an intermediary between the consumer and these fintech platforms, providing the structure and the infrastructure in place so that the banks can use APIs to help with these transactions, right? So Visa, they're making their intentions known with this kind of acquisition by trying to get a foothold on this new way of transferring money outside of the traditional credit card system. Um, and that's because their, their whole system is under jeopardy, some would say, because of this new technology. And maybe the future is going to be paying with my cell phone only and not using credit cards at all. Um, and so they've definitely made a huge statement here about buying this company and we're going to see what they do with it, whether they're going to dissolve it and kind of take the technology and build it into Visa itself and try and open up a new like part of Visa or if they're going to let it run as a startup and just kind of use it as one of their investment portfolio. Um, the big concerns here about data privacy, of course, um, with these kind of acquisitions. Um, the more data that these big companies have, the, the worse these ethical dilemmas become. Yeah. Um, and so the security has been a huge talking point um, when it comes to this acquisition because basically what Plaid used to do was to get the banking details from their consumers and store them in an encrypted fashion and then use those banking details to perform transactions and perform functions on the user's behalf. Right, so yeah. a lot of trust needs to be placed in Plaid. And if you've been trusting them for a few years now, you've been using their services because it's really convenient, all of a sudden now you've got to think about now visas behind it and do you trust them? So yeah, Chad, do you have any thoughts on this acquisition? Really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, such a massive uh, transaction price there. Obviously, a lot of the big uh, ticket items these days are in the space of fintechs. Um, in this one, it, d it does strike me as quite an interesting move um, because like you you know, rightly said, MasterCard and Visa um, for, for a lot of people kind of make up the sort of duopoly of um, this sort of transaction space. Um, do you think this move is, is one, um, obviously, you know, you kind of mentioned a couple of the options for them. Do you think they're looking to squash some, some competitive technologies um, or do you think they are really keen to look at some different ways of doing things, um, especially because they've already, you know, planted their feet very firmly in the space? Yeah, so the optimist in me wants to say that this is a proactive and attacking move to try and move into a new market segment. But having seen enough of these large corporates do exactly that, is buy the competition out and squash them to defend their own interests, 
uh, my gut feel says that's a defensive move. Um, it, we've seen time and time again that these big corporations who have huge sunk costs, who have huge infrastructure in place and really rely on a certain way of doing business, they really struggle to, to pivot and to adapt and to be agile in the way they think about their business. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping it's an attacking move, but my gut feel says no. My gut feel says it's another defensive move by a big corporate. Yeah. And just by trying to buy out the competition and squash them, that doesn't mean you're not going to become obsolete. And it just put, kicks the can further down the road. So we'll have to wait and see whether, what they do with it. Absolutely. I mean, it is really fascinating to see this change. I mean, you know, the advent of, of kind of QR codes and, and the possibility that that could bring. Um, I was actually listening to a, a different show the other day where they basically spoke about South African startup, uh, Ukeshe. I'm not sure if you heard of them. Um, basically, you know, trying to kind of bank a lot more people um, and, and actually, you know, for a lot of informal vendors um, in South Africa, Try and give them another option um, where they can simply hold a, a QR code um, and, and accept, you know, cash from, from anyone uh, who, who wants to buy their services or, you know, buy whatever it is that they're selling. Um, and actually kind of use pick and pay stores as a practical drawing and depositing money into these accounts. Um, so, yeah, certainly the, 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 the way that these sort of QR code systems are, are working um, is definitely changing the game, um, you know, on the international space as well. Definitely. And, and that, I haven't heard that particular startup, but it reminds me of a lot of companies in the in east of Africa, places like Kenya and Ghana, who have really, really pushed the boundaries when it comes to mobile money. Like I think South Africa, when it, on the African continent, is quite far behind with this kind of technology yeah. because we have those big banks in place and those big infrastructure in place. If you look at somewhere like Nairobi, for example, the, all of a sudden, in the space of 10 years, their whole economy changed to mobile money-based. And it's opened up a whole new world of innovation in, the, in that country, and, and it really push what fintech is possible. And so I think that a company like Plaid is, is a kind of enabler for that kind of innovation. And so whether Visa sees it like that or whether they see it as a threat to them, I don't know. Um, but that kind of innovation is definitely happening on the continent, especially in places where there aren't huge traditional financial systems set up, but people still need access to financial services. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the other things that I think about straight away um, are the fintechs here in London who, um, although have got some, you know, pretty revolutionary technology, they still rely on Visa and MasterCard for, you know, their actual payment transactions. Um, so I haven't seen that switch over to, you know, other kind of means uh, on this side of the pond, at least. Um, so it'll certainly be interesting to see what happens there. Um, I mean, do you think anything major will, will be happening in the future? I think that's the big argument at this point is is whether Visa and MasterCard are actually earning the commission that they're making. Like, are they actually adding value in the system? And a lot of people think that they've become so entrenched and so vital to the financial pipes, as, as we call them, that it's very hard to remove them. It's very hard to get around them because you still need those on and off ramps into traditional financial services. So I think that a lot of people have become frustrated with Visa and MasterCard because they collect the commission no matter what and they make incredible profits on the back of that. And whether they're actually adding the amount of value in that they're collecting is, is debatable. And so I think that the financial system is going to change. This kind of middleman is going to become obsolete over time. And so I believe that at Visa MasterCard need to think of new ways to adapt and adjust and make their business viable for the next 100 years. I think that they still have some time because it's going to take a lot of time to make the shift. It's not going to happen overnight. But these kind of moves, if they are proactive, really shows intent that they understand the world is changing and they need to be a part of that if they want to stay alive. Definitely. I mean, something they can't, uh, you know, completely walk away from is is blockchain. And uh, and obviously that's, you know, kind of picking up as we progress as well. Now, moving on to something a little bit less on the main page, um, a bit of a chess record. Yeah. So uh, I didn't expect to bring chess up on this podcast, but I think <laughs> it's really fascinating. Um, the, the world leader at the moment is a guy called Magnus Carlsen. And he's probably the most famous chess name that if, if you've heard of any chess players, he's probably the first one you've heard of. Um, and obvi obviously the chess world is quite small and quite niche. And so a lot of people don't even realize what's happening. But there was a really cool milestone that was hit, I think, last week where he broke the, the, record, the world record for the longest unbeaten run in chess. So he won his 111th game in a row in, wow. in classic chess, which means that like no time limits. So it's one of those chess games that go on for like eight or ten hours. It's pretty, pretty wow. crazy. 
Um, and so that that world record streak of 111 games unbeaten has has really put him at the top of the list when you think of the world's greatest ever chess players. So for a long time, people used to think of Garry Kasparov and various other players as kind of the world's best ever. And Magnus has really become um, in in that kind of realm, and people start to talk about him as the greatest ever. What makes him really fascinating is how young he is. If you look at all of his all of his the guys he competes against, the most of them are in their 40s, in their 50s, and they're like really getting old and and they've been doing this for a long, long time. Magnus is 29 years old. And Same. so he, be he became a grandmaster at age 13, which just boggles my mind. And for those who don't know, a grandmaster is, a, is the highest level of chess you can get. And as far as I understand, there's only a few hundred grandmasters that have ever been given that title. So it's a serious, serious ac accomplishment. And at wow. 13 is just nuts to me. Yeah. Um, and then he, when he, in 2010, when he was 19 years old, he finally got to the top of the rankings and became world number one has, and has been world number one since then. In those, in those years, he's won the last four world championships with no real struggles, so he's really just won them comprehensively. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's a young person who's really taken the chess world by storm and has proven himself as possibly the best player of all time. Absolutely fascinating. Really, really inspiring stuff there as well. Um, you know, I kind of dabbled a little bit in chess in, in primary school, but, uh, you know, not an easy game, not one that's easy to excel at, especially to that level. Um, moving on to the next one, uh, this is something that I actually saw from this side of the pond, um, is that MassMart, the uh, group that basically owns, you know, Dion Wired Game, uh, Macro, and a couple of others in South Africa, um, have announced that they are keen to close down Dion Wired, at least, uh, I think it's around... 50 odd branches, um, which yeah is looking like for 1400 jobs are at risk. Um, this kind of speaks really to what we were chatting about last week on the retail space. Um, but obviously this time now in South Africa, obviously the, the current economic environment uh, pretty uncertain. They've mentioned that they've seen an, a noticeable change in footfall in some of their prime locations. Um, and also uh, in terms of the, the high ticket items and obviously the expenditure of luxury goods um, in an uncertain economy, um, obviously that's, that's hit their margins. Definitely. And I think it speaks to a trend that's really surprised me. And that is the number of people who are willing to buy these high ticket items unseen online. Right, so we've seen a trend where people can look at the specs online and they just trust the specs. So they do enough research on the reviews and whatnot, and they know like what size TV they want, what kind of um, scale, what kind of price, etc. And they're willing to buy online, have it delivered to their house without ever having seen it. And so that's a trend that I don't think many people predicted. I think many people thought that you'd still want to go into the shop and see your washing machine or see your TV, etc. But as the internet has kind of democratized all of that information and you can compare a dozen different options online while you're sitting on your couch, yeah. it really has changed change the game and that's and that's one of the major reasons I think Dion Wide is struggling um, I think that clothing we chatted about it last time clothing is still something people want to go and try on in a lot of yeah. cases but when it comes to your appliances you know a Samsung TV is a Samsung TV and if you know what specs you want what size you want there's no need to go into that store definitely and of course obviously the added benefit of having reviews of other of the people online uh, something that you can't get at a traditional retailer so yeah that's interesting to see and um, we'll, we'll definitely see how that progresses i mean i believe in the last couple of weeks edcon also announced uh, closure of the uh, rosebank store uh, the edgar's store um so yeah i mean definitely not looking good for for the retail space um as a whole um but we'll certainly see what happens there now the next one a bit of a surprise to Barry. We, we <laughs> briefly chatted about this. Um, I'm but so excited for this one. <laughs> <laughs> this last week, Spotify announced playlists for pets. Um, believe it or not, you can now log on to your Spotify account and uh, essentially select your pets. Now, it covers from iguanas to hamsters, obviously dogs and cats in between <laughs> as well. Um, and while you're not home, whether it is for a couple of hours or for a full day, whatever the case is, um, it has got curated playlists for pets and believe this or not, podcasts as well. <laughs> Oh, Chad, when you, when you put this on the list, I thought it was an Onion article. I thought it was a parody. Uh, oh, it seems crazy to me. I think, I think we underestimate, and it's certainly for me because I don't have a dog of my own, but we underestimate how much people care about their pets. Yep. And uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the whole Tesla mode where they, where they put this new dog mode in their car where you can leave your dog in the Tesla and it'll keep <laughs> the air con nice and cool, have a little right. bit of air for the, air for the, for the dog and whatnot. Um, and so there's a lot of these things of these people taking advantage of people's love for pets. Yep. But this seems like a step too far for me. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't understand it at all. I've certainly, I've certainly heard of people 
people playing music for their pets and claiming that they're enjoying it in some way. <laughs> um, but podcast seems like one step too far. Um, I don't know what you think, Chad. <laughs> I haven't listened to any one of these yet. Uh, I think, yeah, maybe we'll have to do a bit of a review at some point. But I've, from what I've read, the podcasts contain reassuring voices. Um, so not sure what kind of effect that has on pets. Um, apparently they have got some, you know, actual uh, veterinarian type credentials behind all of the research that they've done on this. Um, so I'd like to think that they've done their homework, um, but we'll certainly see, um, you know, how it, how it progresses. And if you've got Spotify, please give it a give it a test go on your on your pet and, and let us know, you know, how it affected them, if, if at all. I've just I've actually just thought of a use case that actually might be I can I can get behind maybe. Um, th this new this New Year's I was house sitting in my parents' place and we've got two dogs there, and uh, I went to my I went to a New Year's party at a friend and had to leave the dogs at home, and they obviously struggled with all the fireworks right. Yeah. So I can maybe I can maybe see a use case for if your dogs if there's fireworks around and you can't be at home to like look after them, maybe getting them into a room and giving them some sort of soothing sounds to try and counteract that the fireworks might be useful. So Definitely. maybe there's a use case there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe indeed. Um, now. Now to look back on South African Airways, we looked at them a couple of weeks back and obviously that week-long strike that they had left them in a bit of a predicament. Um, the financial difficulty around that airline is still around and as a result they've moved into business rescue. Now as part of those proceedings, uh, the business rescue practitioners have decided that they need 4 billion rand uh, to keep operations going and, and to kind of rehabilitate the airline if you'd like. Um, two of which they decided needed to come from government. Um, now, as I believe, this has not materialized. Obviously, government uh, knew how much receivables it had, uh, obviously had you know various forms of assets that they wished to liquidate uh, for this purpose, but this hasn't materialized. The business practitioners now saying that they either have to cut back on operations or actually look into something more drastic, and that is liquidation. Yeah, so when it comes to business rescue, it really is a difficult thing to understand for me. Um, personally, it's, it's hard to know where the ethical obligation comes from governments and how important SAA is to the government in order to, to determine well, how much money they're going to give them, right? And we know South Africans really struggling at the moment. There's a huge unemployment problem. There's, there's jobs problems. There's corruption. There's a lot of stuff going on in the country. And this money doesn't just materialize out of nowhere. And so the question we have to be asking is how much is enough, right? When do we get to a stage where SAA has asked for enough bailouts and enough kind of support that they should be like close down in a sense and kind of get a sense of where this airline could go in the future. I think we can't keep kicking the can down the road um, and maybe I don't understand business rescue well enough to make that kind of statement. But in my, in my gut feel, it feels like there has to come to a point where too far is too far. And we haven't seen enough progress from SAA to kind of give us hope that this is going to turn around and make things better. And so it's quite a sad situation. We'll have to wait and see what happens with them. Um, but I, I can't help but think we can't keep having this time and time and time again where they need more and more bailouts. There has to come to a point where we have to draw a line in the sand. Definitely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I had thought that that line had been drawn, um, but obviously, you know, slipping into business rescue has has really kind of asked the government to to push one more time. Um, I think the worrying bit here is um, Telcom actually now also having a look at improving their financial situation and looking to potentially lay off 3,000 workers. Um, now, I believe the Minister of uh, Telecommunications has actually gone through to them um, to kind of just try and, uh, try and assess what's going on there. And uh, I think the big question here is, uh, can government say no to giving telecom some funding um, when they've committed so much to SAA already? Um, I mean, it's this, it's this kind of never-ending thing where, you know, you've got these state-owned enterprises, um, and I, I would argue that they kind of all have an equal right to, to ask for funding. And that's exactly the problem when you set a precedent like this, right? Because then all of a sudden, every other case after it now asks for the same treatment. And we kind of see a parallel with the way that the, the financial crisis turned out in the U.S. when they, the U.S. government was bailing out a bunch of the big banks and big insurance companies. And all of a sudden, other companies are saying, okay, but why can't you bail me out, right? And so once you set that precedent, it's hard to then go back and then kind of renegade and change the way you, you operate. And so I think it's very dangerous when you set a precedent that these companies don't have to stand on their own two feet. 
and they can go and squander a lot of money and a lot of resources and yeah. then come begging for, for, for scraps from the table of the government. So we really need to think carefully about what precedent we're setting as a country. Um, and if these SOEs are going to run effectively, they need to run on their own two feet. And in my opinion, they need to be held to the same standards as every other business who is struggling in the same economy. And they need to find a way to operate whatever it means. And so I think the, the job loss is a serious concern, obviously, um, because we've seen a lot of the SOEs are very bloated and there's a lot of people in those, yeah. in those positions who don't actually have work to do and are, are like a lot of bloated workforce in that sense. Um, but beyond the job losses, we need to hold, hold these guys accountable and hold these companies accountable to stand on their own two feet. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. Completely agree there. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. Right, so this week I came across a website. I haven't given it a visit myself, um, but it's called Thread Up. And obviously in the age of fast fashion, we spoke about the effects of producing cotton on the environment a few weeks ago. Um, and this is a way to take a quiz that actually lets you know how dirty your closet is. It's obviously become so easy for us to get uh, clothing super quickly. Um, you know, we don't hold on to our stuff for as long as we used to in the past. Um, and as a result, obviously a massive effect is being had on the environment. Um, we've seen an increase in secondhand clothing sort of resellers, and I believe this is actually one of them. The quiz just being the sort of initial point to start, so you can actually start thinking about uh, your spending habits when it comes to fashion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought this is quite an interesting one to actually quantify the effect of our fast fashion. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a key conversation we need to have when it comes to the environment and the kind of the impact that we are having on the planet. And there's been a lot of documentaries that have been coming out in the last couple of years talking about this exact issue. The fact that people will buy a cheap piece of clothing because it's in for that season and then once it gets to the end, they won't wear it at all. Or the fact that people will have closets full of hundreds and hundreds of outfits, but they'll only actually wear 10 or 12 of their favorites yeah. and the rest just sit in the cupboard unused. Um, and so when it comes to this, we need, like for me, fashion is not a big part of my life, so I don't really, I don't really think about this too yeah. much. But the whole fashion industry and where, where that's going, the fact that this low price clothing has kind of come onto the market has almost cheapened the value of, of a, a piece of clothing to, this, to the extent that you sometimes you feel like hard justifying buying a real quality piece of clothing, yeah. right? So if you, if you look at a shirt, for example, if you look at a shirt and you look at one that's very, very cheap and looks pretty, pretty good, and then you look at one that's much more expensive, but it's well-made, it's going to last you a long time, etc. A lot of people don't have the justification to be able to pick that shirt, even though if they think about it, they might be buying three of those cheaper shirts in the same lifetime as you buy one of the expensive shirts. And so it's that idea of the money that I spent today is more r relevant to me rather than thinking about how long this is going to last. And maybe that mindset shift is what's needed in order to move past this fast fashion and actually move to buying high quality gear that's going to last me a long time and just buying less of it. Definitely. I mean, when you mentioned your own sort of fashion uh, preferences, um, that also sparked a, a bit of an interesting thought of mine, um, which which is the act of, of sort of minimalism in this space. Um, I've watched a couple of a couple of videos as well where you know people explain their their reasoning for having one or two outfits um, replicated. Um, sort of tenfold, let's say, um, and kind of not actually even thinking about what it is that they wear. Um, because as you said, we, we, we each have, you know, different preferences in life, different, um, different priorities. Um, and, you know, if we look at people like Mark Zuckerberg and the like, um, who, you know, don't want to sort of spend that extra time thinking about what it is they're going to wear on the day. Ultimately, um, it's there for a, for a simple purpose. Um, and if we sort of spend less time thinking about it, um, you know, do you think we could be a bit more productive? Yeah, so I definitely think so. Um, but I don't want to discourage the people that really love fashion, right? Yeah. So for a lot for a long time, I was very against it. I didn't understand why people would spend so much time thinking about it or so much money spending on it, etc. Because for me, it, just, it doesn't resonate with me. But having chatted to a few people who really love fashion, <clears throat> it really is a piece of art, right? And, and for those people who really love that kind of thing, that is their way of expressing themselves. Yeah. So I think for them, it makes sense to spend a lot of money, a lot of time on it. But I think the vast majority of people who don't have that passion and don't really feel the same way could really benefit from what you're saying and that, that kind of minimalism kind of thing and actually realizing and acknowledging the fact that we probably only wear 10 to 20 percent of our closet anyway Definitely. so what's the point of the rest of it just sitting there all the time can we focus on buying things that we know that we love and wear those as much as possible because that's what we think makes us look good 
And so, yeah, I think, I think that's the case. I think if you love fashion and that's your thing, then by all means, go for it and be creative and express yourself and do your thing. But for the vast majority of people who don't really care about that, Let's think more deeply about, like you say, what are we actually wearing in our closet? And when we buy things, can we buy things that are slightly higher quality that's going to last me a longer time, but something that I really love? As opposed to something that's cheap and on a sale and might look good, but I get home and I never wear it again. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, uh, kind of a, a wider discussion, really. Um, you know, I've kind of seen a lot of people speaking about spending only on high quality things that is, that's going to last time. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of look at our, our sort of computers and, uh, you know, whether it's it's worth investing a little bit more in, in, in something that's going to last a bit longer, our, our phones as well. Um, something as simple as a vacuum cleaner. I recently made it a bit of an investment um, in a Dyson, actually, uh, on Black Friday, and believe it or not, it has brought so much joy into mine and my partner's <laughs> life um, because this thing is incredible. Um, it just does the job first time around, um, and yeah, like you said, um, I think it's just I think it's sometimes worth spending that extra money on uh, one thing that that sort of stands the test of time. Definitely. I think that we often think too much about the short term and not enough about the long term, right? So we'll make a decision today and we'll opt to save a few extra bucks because this thing's a little bit cheaper. But if we just thought about what we're going to use it for and like you say, what kind of value it might provide in my life, it often makes more sense to buy the more expensive item, but buy less of those items. Um, and if we can think a bit of a longer term like process and think what I'm going to do for the next five, 10 years, we can make better consumer decisions. 100%. Now let's move on to something a little bit more technical. Barry's been doing some studies on medical lab rats. Barry, take it away. Okay, so we, we're going to try an experiment. We like to mix things up on this podcast. <laughs> and so this experiment is something that is very technical um, and that I'm well out of my depth in. But I think it's fascinating. So what I thought we'd do, Chad, is I would try and walk you through this, this arguments and this kind of thought process as clearly as I can do it um, with the understanding that I'm going to piss off a number of biologists in our audience or people who really read this literature quite carefully <laughs> because I'm going to butcher it. I know that. But there's a key point at the end of this that I want to get to. And so hopefully I can walk you guys through it in a clear way that kind of gets you fascinated about this particular topic. Okay. Awesome. With all that preface aside. <laughs> All right, so when we think about aging, right? So we, we, we think about aging and, and why do we age over time? Why do we die at the time that we die, et cetera? And one of the main reasons and kind of the key, the key idea here is that our cells are dividing and dividing and dividing throughout our life. But as we get older, they stop dividing at some points and they start to decay. And that's where things like cancer and those kind of illnesses come into play. And that's why we die, because our cells start to die, right? But the thing is that if those cells aren't killed by disease, Right, They seem to have a weird characteristic. By looking at the genetic code, we kind of assume that they would divide infinitely because there's no sign of why they would stop dividing. They seem to divide from the moment we're born right up until we die. And so for a long time, we didn't understand why they stopped dividing at a certain point. Why did we decide that, say, at age 80 or age 90 or whatever the story is, then they stopped and that's why we died? And for a long time, medical students and kind of the, the medical community were trying to figure that out, to try and understand how can we solve aging or how can we improve lifestyle and those kinds of things. Um, and we couldn't find any evidence in the actual genes as to why they stopped dividing. Recently, we figured out, and when I say recently, I think it's about five or six years ago now, we figured out that the limit was actually enforced by something outside of the genes itself. So we were spending a lot of time looking at the genes and decoding them and trying to understand why a certain cell would decide to stop dividing. And um, what we figured out was that the, the limit is actually enforced by something called a telomere, which is genetic in nature, so it's similar to a gene, but it's not actually a gene. And as far as I understand, it's connected to the gene itself, so it's on the edge of the DNA. And that telomere decides, cool, at a certain point, there's going to put a limit, and it kind of sends an electrochemical signal to these cells that kind of stops that dividing process, and that's why the cells start to decay and start to die over time. So these telomeres are very, very important, and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even try and explain them because I don't understand them at all. But you don't need to know what they are to, to get the point. That's kind of the reason that it evaded our eyes for so long is because we were so focused on the genes themselves and not on the telomeres. Okay. So that's kind of the, the basic understanding you need to know for this. Moving on to cancer. So obviously cancer is a huge killer in our society and so much of our medical profession is, is working on trying to improve it and trying to find ways to cure cancer. 
and in doing that, we often use, we always use lab rats as kind of our test cases to test new drugs and new methods of, of, of curing and whatnot. Because these rats have a lot of characteristics that are very similar to human beings, and we, we kind of use them as our guinea pigs, to, to, to put it precisely. And these rats are, obviously now the whole science community uses them, and so everyone needs to source them uh, for whatever experiments they're running. And what's happened is because in a capitalistic market, you've got these companies that have, that have built up whose sole purpose is to breed and sell these rats to the labs. Sure. Right. So for example, if I'm a lab in South Africa, I will send an order to um, some sort of supplier somewhere in the world and order my rats in. And they will do the job of breeding them and getting them ready and making sure there's quality control and whatnot. And I'll be deliver these rats and to which to do these experiments on. Now, there's a whole set of ethical dilemmas there that I'm not going to touch in this in this portion. But yeah. uh, obviously, it's quite debatable as to whether we should be doing that at all. But if we if we if we accept that that's part of the process, those companies then breed those rats and then sell them to the scientific community. Right. So if you now put yourself in the shoes of those companies, in order to make the most money that they can, their incentive is to breed the rats as fast as possible and as cheaply as possible, right? Because those are their two inputs to their business. And the better they can do that, the more efficient they can make it, the more money they make. And so the incentive there, and, and so what happens then is that they are breeding younger and younger rats, and the reason for that is because younger rats breed faster than older rats. Right. And so they've obviously done the calculation and they've figured out, cool, if we breed our rats younger and younger, and when they get to a certain age, we just give them away or throw them away or whatever they do with them, it means our margins are better and it means better economically for our business. So what that has done over time is that the companies receiving these rats haven't been receiving rats of all sorts of ages. They've only been receiving the younger rats, right? And this has been working fine, and they've been running all the experiments and whatnot. But in the last couple of years, there's been a little bit of research that have started to challenge that view. And what they've shown is that the younger rats have a different telomere length to the older rats, right? So the younger rats have a longer telomere than the older rats. And what's happened is that because these lab rats have been bred so much and in so long a time, they've started to be bred for the longer telomeres. And, and almost change the genetic code of those rats, which means that the lab rats themselves are not genetically the same as the, lab, the rats in the wild. They've been kind of corrupted or biased because of this market force on these companies. And so what this means is that there's potentially a very severe bias in where we test these drugs. And if you think about the telomere as the thing that kind of stops cells dividing, it's a very important piece of the puzzle. So a, a researcher called Brett Weinstein has kind of put together this, this argument, and it's very controversial, and it's kind of shook, shook up a lot, of the, a lot of the medical world. And what it says is that what if these lab rats that we're using for our drug testing actually aren't representative of the kind of rats in the wild, and therefore aren't representative of the human body itself? So by artificially changing the telomere length, just by evolution, just by breeding yeah. these rats, what if, we've, what if we change that crucial part of the experiment? So like those rats are supposed to be neutral, they're supposed to be the kind of the common controlled variable in these cases. And maybe there's a stumbling block when it comes to solving cancer because we've changed their telomeres. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just fascinating. And I obviously, Chad, I hope that's somewhat clear because um, obviously I don't know exactly what I'm talking about here. But the moral of the story and kind of the crux that I wanted to get to is that we have to be so careful about what we think is neutral and what we think are controlled variables when we think about experiments in life. And we can't get too complacent. We can't think the lab rats we've been using for decades now are just going to say exactly the same and that's going to be perfect. We can use them for the rest of time. Um, when it comes to science and when it comes to life even, the real breakthroughs come from ignoring that status quo and looking like critically and skeptically at the things, the inputs in our experiments and getting a sense of what does a problem from first principles look like. This kind of this kind of discovery, if it's if it's proven and it's peer reviewed and it kind of it kind of throws a huge spanner in the world, looking at all of the various experiments that have been run on rats all around the world. It's a huge problem if this is the case. And so it's an example of how in the scientific method we have to be so careful about looking at every single variable and making sure that we haven't got complacent, we haven't let our standards drop, and we're not being misled by information because we haven't been careful enough in those in those spaces. Chad, does that make any sense at all? <laughs> that does, that does. It was, yeah, quite a lot to take in, and I also have nothing really useful to contribute in this space. <laughs> um, but I, I, I get I get why it's so important. Um, if we are basically you know doing all of our testing on 
rat test subjects. And, uh, you know, essentially are, are missing that them as a species are evolving throughout our testing. Um, you know, are they actually comparative anymore? Is this a, a safe space to to do all of our tests, um, you know, before we move it into, into human experiments? And I suppose an another question is, um, what would the solution be? Do we sort of throw in a few wild rats every now and then? Um, do we need to legislate these breeding facilities? Um, and, you know, in terms of a, on a global scale, um, is there a certain dominating market um, in these breeding facilities or does every region have a sort of equal weighting? Um, this is a fascinating thing, something that I've never thought about. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and that, kind of, that kind of concentration in these key areas is very, very dangerous for this kind of field. As far as I understand, the, the, the companies who make these, who breed these rats and kind of distribute them are very few in number and they're giant organizations and right. they've kind of controlled the markets. And so there isn't that diversification that we might want. And quite an anecdote that might be useful in making it more clear is thinking about clinical trials in general on human beings. If we look at the history of clinical trials of drugs and whatnot, a lot of them happen in the first world. A lot of them happen in the US, in Europe, etc. And there's a lot of concern that there's a lot of bias in those results. Because by its nature, if you're sitting in the US and you're taking a sample of people in your area or in your neighborhood or in your country, obviously you only got the genetics and you only got the people who live there and have that kind of background. But those drugs are then shipped to Africa, to Asia, and all around the world. But they haven't been tested on African DNA or African genetics. And so there's a serious concern there as to are these trials and these experiments too highly concentrated in key areas because they have the right resources, they have the money to do the experiments and they have the kind of the, the intellectual capital. And what does that say if we have these biased training data and this biased results? If this turns out to be true and if this lab rat's research actually comes out to be true, it really does throw a lot of issues into the world because these clinical trials are all that's standing between us and trying this new drug. Yeah. Right, and as Africans, like we don't have much of a say in that. We kind of take whatever the U.S. is sending to us because that's how the world works. Um, and so, yeah, serious concerns here. I think very interesting. Um, I'm not sure what the solution is, to be honest, Chad. Very, very interesting indeed. Now, to throw another spanner in the works, um, today I've heard of news that there might be, uh, basically, there's some hope that there might be a breakthrough in a cancer cure. Uh, this has now been dubbed as a universal cancer treatment. Um, and again, something I'm also out of my depth on. But I did do a little bit of reading about, you know, kind of how they've come about this. And essentially, in our immune system, um, there are something called T cells. Um, you know, these are kind of cells that are able to identify illness, if you like, and kind of attack that illness and kind of leave the rest of us intact. Now, what they've been able to do is they've been able to... Um, Obviously, it's still in trials and it's still in very early days. Um, but basically, what they're planning to do is take samples of our blood, extract the T cells that we currently have, and then essentially boost them into super T cells, if you like, uh, that are able to attack cancer, now universal cancer. So they've mentioned you know, prostate cancer, um, breast cancer, lung cancer, all of that, uh, all, all of them essentially. Um, and yeah, basically be left with a solution where you know, they are able to produce this mass amount of these extra T cells, pump them back into your body. Um, and essentially, you know, you, your body being able to um, potentially cure itself. Now, I believe that this T cell type treatment is not completely new. Um, but this is a different approach, I believe, and um, really interesting that, uh, you know, they've stripped a part of our immune system um, that's there to protect us and hopefully found something that, uh, if amplified, can cure cancer. This is exciting, but also very surprising to me. Um, from all, of, all that I've read about cancer, my understanding was that a universal cure is kind of an oxymoron because every cancer is so different and there's so few things that are common across the board and that makes it such a difficult disease to fight because you're actually not fighting on one front, you're fighting thousands of different fronts. But what you say actually makes sense when you think about if we fix the defense systems inside of us, the immune system, the guys that are fighting these these illnesses, maybe that's a universal way to tackle that. Um, and so, yeah, again, I, d I don't know much about this, but it sounds interesting um, and it's, it's one of those things that if we can fix that, like if we can fix cancer or really make progress there, it will mean a huge deal for how we think about illness and aging in, in our 21st century world. 
Definitely. I mean, just to add quickly, um, this one, a discovery by the Cardiff University. Um, obviously, you know, spectators are very hopeful about it, um, but still in completely early stages. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and see how it uh, develops. But yeah, could definitely be something very promising for humanity as a whole. Now let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. Now, I've seen a couple of little gadgets like this before where they kind of cast a little bit of a laser in front of you. But Barry, one of the main tech producers now bringing this into their lineup as well. Yeah, so this is an interesting development for the future of smartphones, the future of computers as a whole. Uh, like you said, we've seen a, a bunch of devices which they will try and project a keyboard onto a surface, so for example, a desk or a coffee table, etc., and let you type on the table as if there was a keyboard there, but there actually isn't a keyboard. And in the past, they've kind of used um, facial, not facial recognition, but um, camera technology to try and pick up, cool, where is your, where are your fingers and what keys are you typing on at various points in time? And it's always been a little bit clunky. It's been a little bit gimmicky. Nothing really works as well as it looks like in these demos for various reasons. Um, but Samsung's recently come out with a prototype for one of these virtual keyboards, which uses the selfie camera on your phone to pick up where your fingers are. And then you type on, say, a table, for example. Now, for me, it seems a bit weird. It feels like, for me, a lot of the, the, the benefit of the keyboard is feeling that click and, and getting a sense of the tangible touch when it comes to a keyboard. Um, I think this is, goes one step further than typing on a glass interface to actually typing on a piece of like wood or whatnot. And whether it works as well as it says is up anyone's guess. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at what will the future look like? Will it be a hologram that's get projected on the wall and then the keyboard is on your, on your table? Will it actually be a piece of technology or will it just be in the cloud itself? Um, it's hard to know what the future is going to look like, but this is an interesting glimpse as to what a potential future could look like. Absolutely. Sounds fascinating. Um, I'm always keen on these kind of developments. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the thought of having a hologram um, replacing, you know, a traditional keyboard at, at this at this point in time um, is is certainly fascinating and, and we'll have to see what happens. Now, the interesting thing here for me that I saw was the, the selfie cam using the selfie cam. Um, I mean, how exactly does this work? Yeah, so that's the big change, right? And in all the previous kind of iterations of the technology, you'd have to buy a separate gadget that kind of sits at the bottom of your keyboard and then projects onto the table. So this is quite a new innovation from Samsung and using the selfie cam that's already on your device to pick up your finger movements. So as far as I understand, what happens is you set up the phone or the laptop um, as you would normally would on like a horizontal surface. And that selfie cam tracks your fingers over time and there actually isn't anything projected on the on the table it's purely right. your fingers and you kind of watching the keyboard on your device and when you push the d for example you see the d being pushed on the, on the device wow. so it's it it feels science fictiony it feels very very magical um, i think you would look like a real idiot in a coffee shop if you were just Tapping on a tapping on a <laughs> coffee table, um, but if the, if this works like it promises to, um, based on this demo, it removes the need for an extra gadget in order to enable this technology. If it's already built into your camera and you can just switch it on at a moment's notice, it makes it a lot more compelling than having to go and buy another piece of tech that's going to track your fingertips. Now, if we think of the smartphone generation and how you know a couple of years ago, all of us all of a sudden got really, really used to using QWERTY keyboards all the time. Um, you know, it probably wouldn't be as much of a problem. But I'm just thinking of those people who still have to physically look at their keys. Um, I th this seems to me like it could pose a bit of difficulty in using this product. You're now not going to have the key right in front of you that you can actually look at. Obviously, you're taking cues from the screen that's on your cell phone in front of you. Um, but surely efficiency is lost there at some point. Yeah, definitely. I, th I, th I think that the use case for this is a bit murky in my view. I don't see a world where you're going to be sitting at a table like that and typing like like I, like we suggest. Um, a lot of the interaction with our devices has changed to be with uh, with our thumbs, right? Because we're sitting on couches, we're sitting on the tube, we're not really in situations to do long form typing on our phone. And so I don't know if it's going to take the place of laptop typing. If you're going to sit down and write a whole document with it, um, that I'm a bit skeptical of that view. And like you say, we've gotten so used to using our two thumbs and using swipe type and all those kinds of things. I wonder if it's going to change our behavior or not it's it's really interesting to see what's going to happen there 
Yeah, definitely true. We'll have to see what happens to that technology. Now, moving on to the next one, um, something that completely slipped my radar. Um, Barry mentioned there was a white paper a couple of years ago, but this is Uber and one of their arms, which is called Elevate. Now, obviously, over the years, it's been gaining traction. Um, we saw at CES, Hyundai released a vehicle. And essentially, this is basically saying that uh, in the fairly near future, we may have a case where humans can get transported by drone type vehicles, vehicles that are able to land vertically um, and essentially, uh, you know, alleviate some of the congestion that we have on the roads. Um, I have watched one of the videos um, for Uber Elevate and the interesting piece for me is that they're not looking to completely uh, eradicate the car leg of their journeys, um, but they're, what they're trying to do is trying to insert a PAV, personal aircraft vehicle, in the middle of this journey um, to, yeah, kind of ease the congestion on the roads. Uh, now this for me, quite an interesting one. Obviously it looks like something way far in the future, um, but now that we're starting to see some innovation come about, uh, very interesting indeed. Definitely. And like you say, the white paper came out a couple years ago, but at that stage, it was much more of a proposal and kind of an idea. And we're starting to see some, some inklings that things might be moving in that direction and they might be moving towards a potential prototype in the future. I think that this is interesting because if we look at our major cities around the world, traffic is one of the biggest issues. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, the infrastructure and the road system aren't built for the number of people that have moved into those urban areas. And so when you start to think about traffic patterns, you start to think about how do we improve things, we don't really have space to build more roads or to make more lanes. And the only kind of way we can improve things is to go 3D, so to go above the ground or yeah. below the ground. So Elon Musk has decided to go the below the ground route with his boring company, looking to build tunnels underground that does a similar thing. So having pick up and drop off points where you can park your car and then go into this pod and go underground and come up to your, at your location. And Uber Elevator is the opposite. It's kind of looking to go above the ground. So like yeah. you say, you're taking a drone-like device from one drop off point to another. And uh, yeah, it kind of feels, it feels very futuristic. It's kind of like the Jetsons. That's, that's, that's the image I have in my <laughs> head. Um, and so whether it's going to happen, I don't know. Some of the concerns that I've heard or read about is the noise that these things make. Um, I think right. we know how much a, a small drone, how much noise that makes at the moment. Now imagine one that's big enough to host one or two people. It's going to yeah. make a lot of noise. That's the one concern. And the second one is how much demand and what kind of cost they, can they get these things at to make yeah. it viable, right? So how expensive are these trips going to be and is it just going to be a joyride that you do for the instagram photo or is it actually going to become part of the transport system as a whole and if you're trying to move between two very densely populated areas does this solve that problem um, but fascinating nonetheless and i'm really excited to see if they actually go for it Absolutely. I mean, from the looks of it, they've been spending quite a bit um, in terms of R&D to kind of make it happen. Um, I believe they've approached quite a few manufacturers to to kind of get the initial mock-ups of what these vehicles may look like. Um, but certainly for me, a, a flying vehicle with, you know, just a couple of people, in terms of affordability as well, um, you know, are just general consumers going to be able to afford this offering um, is it something that they're looking to make accessible or is it something for the you know more wealthy uh, of commuters um, and then also for me the fact that they're not looking to completely replace you know a full journey end to end and, and actually looking at this as a as a sort of point in between if you factor in that time of of getting out the car going into a, a high-rise building going up the lift um, obviously meeting some sort of safety officer at the top getting into the vehicle doing that on both ends um is it is it viable in terms of in terms of time taken um, and time saved um so yeah i mean i definitely find that quite interesting what do you think would you be keen to jump into one of these things I think I think for the novelty of it, definitely. But I, I'm not I'm not convinced that I'd want to do it every day for my commute. Yeah. Um, I, I I wonder if they're going to test this out with helicopters to start off with and just see what the experience is like, right? So if if I think about it, it sounds like a helicopter type definitely. situation to me. And so I wonder if they're going to test a few a few markets with some helicopters and see if if that kind of demand happens and if it actually is is worthwhile. Like you say, it seems a bit tedious to have to do all of those steps. But for example, what if you're working in that high rise building? Right. So what if you are working yeah. at a giant, um, the World Trade Center, or whatever the story is, and once you finish with your work, you hop up to the roof, you jump on your, your Uber Elevate, 
and you get taken outside of the major city center where there's obviously gridlock and lots and lots of people and get dropped in, in more in your suburb and then it allows you to Uber home from that from that position. So I do see use cases here and I, I think there's interesting kind of ways to look at this. Um, I don't know about the cost. I mean, the cost is going to be a, a huge deal, I think. Um, I can't see these things being cheap, um, especially to start off with. And so whether it makes sense economically, I don't know. But the traffic situations in some of these major cities are getting so bad that people are desperate for solutions. So who knows? Maybe this is the next solution. Yeah, certainly interesting there. Um, and we'll have to see. I, I completely get you if you're working and a lot of the times also living in, in sort of high-rise buildings, um, it does make sense for us to to use that extra um, you know, airspace for something uh, like this. Um, moving on to the next thing, this is something that the majority of our listeners uh, well, either will or will not be pleased by. Um, looking at our stats, the majority of our listeners are listening on iPhones. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically news coming out essentially from the European Parliament, um, urging the European Commission um, to force tech giants to adopt a single universal charging method. Now we've obviously seen USB-C pick up in, in recent times, um, and obviously Apple has gone that way on their laptops, um, but have been kind of, uh, you know, reluctant to to make this change on on iPhones and on um, iPads as well. Um, but yeah, if this ruling comes out, very possible that they're going to be forced to make this change. Um, and a lot of market commentators actually wondering whether they'll do what they did with the headphone jack before and actually just completely drop it. Um, do you imagine a world where wireless charging is the only option? Uh, potentially, potentially. It depends how good the wireless charging gets, yep. right? From my experience, wireless chargers have been notoriously unreliable and uh, in some cases very, very slow. And so I think that's the reason that it hasn't taken off to the extent that a lot of predictors were making. Yep. Um, but when it comes to the connections, when it comes to this kind of, again, it's an example of Apple trying to control their ecosystem, right? And trying to control the kind of the, the walled garden that Apple kind of puts you in as a customer. Yeah. Um, and so what, whatever happens here is going to set a precedent going forward for what it looks like to be in competition with Apple in the future. So how much of that walled garden do they have to open up to external parties in order to stay in business and to maintain that kind of, that kind of world? Um, so it's interesting to see. I think that's Apple obviously have been pushing against this for a long time and maybe yep. the social pressure is getting to a stage where it's finally time to give that up and, and give that universal connection. Um, and hopefully it brings an end to some of the dongle situations we've had as Apple users in the past where you have to have 18 different attachments to use your computer or to like plug a memory card in or whatever the story is. Yep. So hopefully it's a move towards some sort of um, understanding that the world is in a certain direction and, and these, these cables and these connectors have become standard and it certainly will make it easier for consumers they don't have to go and buy another thousand different attachments for various uses. Definitely. Well, let's see how it moves on there. I mean, in terms of the ecosystem, given that their laptops are already on it, um, it'll probably actually not be such negative for them. I'm not sure why they've been resisting so much on this. Potentially, they've just got a sort of excess of components that they feel they have to use up before before switching. Um, but we'll certainly have to see what happens there. Um, let's move on to develop and grow. Develop and grow. Now, the first one, um, if you this last week felt blue, a blue Monday, um, apparently it's been scientifically proven or not scientifically proven, depending on how you look at it, um, that this last Monday was the bluest day of the year. Um, and I believe it's from a university professor who has actually put together a formula. Um, some of the, uh, the variables there are weather, debt, time since Christmas, time since failing our New Year's resolutions, low motivational <laughs> levels, and the feeling of a need to take action. Um, so really interesting for me that somebody has actually put together a formula and calculated the gloomiest day of the year. Obviously, you know, kind of where it falls in with reference to payday, um, assuming everyone, you know, spent a lot of their, a lot of their cash during Christmas time and, and all the rest. Um, this last day, Monday, uh, being the bluest Monday of the year. What do you think, Barry? I find this quite interesting because I think that a lot of the key to life and success in life is your attitude and the way you look at things, right? And a lot of those kind of criteria you mentioned, the all the time since Christmas and the weather and all of that kind of stuff, is all stuff that's out of our control. Yeah. But if we let it if we let it affect the way we think and the way we act in our day-to-day -day lives, then it becomes the gloomiest day of the year. And so I think there's there's probably a lot of evidence that points to that calculation and that's kind of as as a key point in time where people really struggle with their with their mental health and their moods and whatnot. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to understand that 
Those things we can't control, right? And what we can control is our attitude in those situations. Can we turn around and say, I don't care what that guy decided and what he figured out and what that equation says. If I want my Monday to be powerful and I want my Monday to be fulfilling, I can choose to do that. I can yep. choose to think about it in a different way. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that kind of boosts our attitude, boosts our mood, and really changes the way we look at our life. And so for me, it's a comment on what can we control, what can't we control. If we're going to take that as, cool, it's a Monday. Every single Monday, I'm just deciding I'm going to be miserable and I'm going to complain all day and whatnot, and I'm just going to complain that the weekend is over. Then obviously, you're going to have a bad day because you're kind of enforcing that on yourself. But if you walk into Monday with kind of excitement and enthusiasm and say, even though I've had a great weekend and I'm dreading some meetings or whatever the story is, I can choose to walk into this with a positive attitude and move forward in my career. Um, and so it's much easier said than done. Like I'm terrible at this as well. So it's not a, it's not a brag at any, in any stage. Um, but it's a reminder for us that control what you can control and don't worry about the rest. What do you think, Chad? I think that's a great way of looking at it. I think we all need to get better at doing that, to be honest. Um, like you said, it's all, it's all about um, perspectives. It's all about how we look at things. Um, I, I mean, I certainly get it from, uh, from the point of, you know, being two degrees outside. And, uh, you know, if you weren't kind of financially smart and, and you know, you know, did some sort of irresponsible things during Christmas time, um, obviously, you know, Christmas in London is, is uh, fantastic. You know, with all the lights, it's, it's such a beautiful place to be. And I can, I can see how it could kind of leave a little bit of a, a hole when, when it's all when it's all gone so i i get it but I, I i get what you're saying as well and i think we need to get better at uh, sort of just shifting our perspectives on things um to be honest i actually dodged this monday because i gave myself a bit of an activity on sunday night um which sort of left me not really thinking about you know the monday blues um and that was an open mic night so i haven't done one in i think five years somewhere along there Certainly haven't done one in London since since getting here um, roughly two years ago, um, and yeah, I mean just just the, the sort of general chat of the the adrenaline of of putting yourself in front of people um, to do whatever your chosen art is. Um, you know, for me it was uh, just singing with an acoustic guitar, um, and you know how when you put yourself in those types of environments, um, inevitably you grow and you you kind of get more comfortable. Um, obviously, this is my first time back. You know, kind of starting from scratch really um, but I definitely saw from some of the other performers how this environment is just completely normal to them um, and certainly you know kind of doing this over and over I think will get me there one day uh, certainly Barry you were supposed to do my open mic night last night what happened <laughs> oh you're calling me out Chad you're calling me out <laughs> yes indeed I, I so me and Chad chatted and we both ended up doing open mic nights one night after another and so yeah. I saw Chad's video and he did incredibly well he sounded pristine <laughs> as usual um, and then it came to my night and unfortunately I, I don't have many excuses I was bogged <laughs> down by my thesis um, I felt like I was in the zone and I, I just I just didn't end up getting in the car and driving there um, so it's, it's all my fault I really wish I'd gone but like you say, I've been performing at this particular open mic that I go to. It, it happens once a month, and I've been doing it for the last couple of months. Yeah. And I've really found value in rediscovering my music and rediscovering that kind of creative expression. Um, and like you say, it's terrifying before you get up there. And you Absolutely. get up there, especially after not doing it for a long time, and it's really, really scary. But I, I, I felt, certainly with my personality, when I start to share and when I start to express myself, I feel really good about it. Yep. And I think not enough of us take that seriously as we get older and we move into our adult lives. Like I know a lot of my friends who loved music and loved theater and loved art and all these various hobbies and whatnot and creative things. And the moment they go into their jobs, because obviously reality is reality, you've got to pay the bills and whatnot, they kind of let those hobbies slide. Definitely. And open mic nights and these kinds, of ex these kinds of nights and communities you can find anywhere you are in the world are a great way of just kind of rekindling that fire and keeping that going throughout your life. Um, I think it's very, very powerful to have something beyond your work that you're really interested in, you're yep. really passionate about. And it's not about being the perfect performer. It's not about like not making mistakes. It's not about putting together Grammy-winning performances. <laughs> it's about putting yourself out there and like sharing what you care about, sharing what matters to you. And that experience, like you say, gets you out of your comfort zone and hopefully helps to make to not take ourselves so seriously right Definitely. and remember that it doesn't matter if i make a mistake it doesn't matter if i hit a wrong chord if i forget my lyrics etc in a safe space like an open mic night i can just express myself and meet other like-minded people doing the yeah. same thing yeah 
yeah, and both of those things, um, two things that I did as well, um, forgot quite a few lyrics and yeah, definitely fudged <laughs> up a couple of chords, but um, it's all part of the process. It's all, it's all part of it. And I think why I wanted to add it to it here was, like you said, just to kind of urge anyone who, um, you know, we spoke about spoken word. Do you have a little poetry hobby that you uh, kind of keep nurturing? And, and, you know, is it maybe time to, to put yourself in front of people and, and just, uh, yeah, find an even deeper love for, for what it is? Um, if you've got a, a little hobby of making things, making crafts, um, I certainly know Etsy is a, is a good site that a lot of people, you know, put their stuff up on and, you know, sell a couple of things. Um, and, and, yeah, also just kind of get some ideas from other people. Um, it's a community at the end of the day. Um, and that's the whole point of it. Um, I think a lot of happiness and, and sort of general um, satisfaction and well-being comes from immersing ourselves in our communities. Um, and yeah, just getting as much as we can out of people with uh, common interests. Um, so shall we move on, Barry? Let's do it. What's on your mind? Awesome. Well, this week we've got a question in from a listener. Unfortunately, we don't have a voice note today, um, but we did get the question um, in written format. So let's read it out. This one's from Sashin. Um, so yeah, thanks for your question, Sashin, and thanks for listening as well. Um, yeah, basically, um, how the low pass rates are going to affect the mentality of our younger generation, um, those that just want to pass with such a low mark. Um, it's definitely an interesting question. Uh, we look at South Africa specifically, and it's very clear um, when we have these uh, kind of benchmarking surveys and, and all of those types of, uh, of surveys that, that, you know, kind of statistics that get released, um, the flag post seems to be moving lower and lower. And we seem to be encouraging lesser and lesser. And, uh, you know, where does this put us in, in terms of the future generation? Now, obviously, the fourth industrial revolution is something uh, key here as well. Um, you know, we, we talk about things like uh, like curiosity, like, uh, you know, actually wanting to to find out new things and to learn new things. And I think that's where you you kind of do your best is when you actually find an interest in the subject matter. Um, but when we keep these flag posts so low, um, what does this do to the future generation? Um, I, I certainly think it's a concern. Barry, what's your take? Yeah, I think it's very concerning. And, and a lot of South Africans have felt this for a long time now is that these pass rates keep getting reduced and reduced and reduced. And like you say, I think the, the problem here is a misaligned incentive, right? Because when people look at the success of the education system, all they're looking at is the metric of the number of people passing out of, out of, the, out of the total. Yeah. And that metric um, obviously incentivizes us to get as many people to pass as possible. And if we aren't getting the results we should be seeing from our education system, the easiest way to fix that metric is to lower the, lower the bar. Um, and so in the short term, it looks amazing because we can show a graph that the, the pass rates are going in a certain direction and that looks good for the country. But if you just spend 10 seconds looking into it, you realize that the standards are dropping. And so the quality of education isn't going anywhere. And if anything, it's getting worse. Yep. Um, but the numbers say a different story. And so it's a very short-sighted thing to do because the quality of your education and the matriculants that are coming out of your, your schools is indicative of the kind of leaders you're going to have in the future and the kind of the, the, the business leaders and the political leaders and the scientists and all that kind of stuff. And if the standards are getting lower and lower for these guys to get out of school, it really is concerning for the country. So I think that the universities themselves are, are very unhappy with this because obviously it, it lowers the bar for their entrance as well. Um, and it really is a, a disturbing trend we're seeing in South Africa. Um, I don't know how to fix it. Obviously, we've got huge problems in the whole system. And so it's easier to say, cool, just lift the pass rates and everything will be fine. That's not the case. Yep. There's a lot of problems that are in the system that need to be fixed. And so it's hard to know where to start. But in my opinion, lowering those standards is just kicking the can down the road. And it's very short-sighted as to where the future of the country is going to be. I certainly agree with you there. I mean, in the university space, and um, we've we've seen the bell curve. We've seen that for a long time, and uh, and generally it's been used as a, an acceptable method because within a class you're going to have your high performers and your low performers. But like you say, when you kind of change the entrance, uh, essentially the the entrance pool, you make that a wider pool. Um, is that bell curve model then you know reasonable to use anymore? Um, just an interesting thought. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's something to think about. And I think we need a lot of innovation in the space, right? When we think about how to grade students or how to how to decide, like, as you say, who are the top performers, who are the, le the lesser performers, um, and how do we help those guys on, on the spectrum? Um, we need to be thinking more carefully about what does education look like in today's world? You mentioned the fourth industrial revolution. Maybe the way that we grade or the way that we test needs to change as well. 
And yeah. so beyond just the actual number itself, we should be thinking more carefully about what does it look like to grade on a standardized method in South Africa specifically, based on our unique challenges and the, based on the kind of things we face as a country. I can't imagine what it must be like to be a teacher and put so much effort and take so much pride in your work and then be passing guys who are getting 25, 30% in yeah. your subject. Definitely. That to me must be heartbreaking, especially if you put so much effort into this and like you have some sort of pride that your class is at a certain difficulty level, but then if someone is getting 30% on your test, you, you're letting them through. Um, yeah. And so I think it's a sad situation all around and it certainly is a marker for a lot of work needs to be done both in the innovation space as well as from a government perspective looking at what, why do these marks matter and, and how do we think about them more carefully? Definitely something we're going to have to give some thought on. I mean, if I think just about myself and in terms of, you know, having gone to a government school, um, in my year, the, the basically the science exam, there was one distinction in the whole of matric, um, fairly big size school. Um, and the very following year, there were 25. Um, so completely, you know, completely clear to see um, what what happened within those two years, and uh, yeah, definitely uh, an interesting development. Hopefully, we can come up with some some solution. I agree with you that it's not clear cut, um, but hopefully, we can get closer to something a little bit more sustainable. Um, you know, maybe maybe judging the the on like an outcomes type approach rather than just looking at marks. Um, that brings us then to the end of our episode. Um, we we made it through. Um, if you are watching on YouTube, there's going to be a lot of bloopers. For some reason, we have some episodes <laughs> that are, are better than others um and uh, yeah this this episode i'm not sure why barry but uh you know we we weren't on our best game yeah it really was a struggle and i think it's an interesting thing to show to the viewers trying to be as transparent as possible and that yeah. this stuff is hard hey and some 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 weeks we get on here and we feel like we're on form and we, we're articulating ourselves well and things are going well and then some days it doesn't go so great um, so today was one of those days. We hope you found some value. We, we definitely tried a few experiments in this one, some more technical stuff and whatnot. So please let us know what you think. Um, we, we, we will be better next week, we promise. Um, but please let us know what you think. If you have any questions, please send those through. We love hearing those. And we love definitely. answering those. And a thank you to everyone who's listening. We really do appreciate it. Um, I know we say it a lot, but we really mean it. Um, it's super cool that you guys are on this journey with us. And uh, yeah, we look forward to doing a bunch more. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in. As always, this was episode 11 of Across the Pond. Pond, pond, across the pond.